Greetings, you fleeting ephors. Welcome to the Blind Buy Podcast. I hope everyone's having a wonderful, a wonderful January. Fuck January. Fuck February. Fuck March. I'm not a fan of all three of those months. They're like the people at a house party at 7am who are still downstairs in the living room, kind of going to sleep with the music playing real low and it's like, just get a taxi. Just get a fucking taxi. Nothing's going to happen. The party was over too. What are you doing? Get into a taxi and go home to bed. It's 7am. Everyone else is in bed. That's January, February and March for me. Like, with, 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 like, December, November, there's a kind of a purpose to those months. And they're cold. January, February, March. It's just deceptively cold. It's dark, and the cold doesn't come in the form of frost. It comes in the form of aggressive sideways wind and rain that smells like untanned leather. I'm usually optimistic. I'm usually I'm, I'm usually striving to find meaning in whatever particular bit of weather or seasons we get. But my issue with January, February and March, they really put me to my limits. It's hard to find beauty within them. Because I suppose you're just waiting for them to end. Like, give me a nice refreshing dose of April. That's what I want. I like April. Because April's cold, but it's doing its best impression of summer. So this uh, this podcast has nothing to do with months. <laughs> oh. <laughs> this um, this podcast is about psych- psychedelic uh, drugs. It's about MDMA and about magic mushrooms, otherwise known as psilocybin. I have a guest who's returning to the podcast this week. Um, Dr. Paul Lichnitsky, who's a clinical psychologist and a neuroscientist and he's the head of clinical psychedelic research at Monash University over in Melbourne in Australia and Paul is leading the world's first clinical study of psilocybin as a treatment for generalised anxiety disorder so Dr. Paul Dicknitsky is he's a scientist he's an expert and he's studying and testing out on humans drugs that we've been told are illegal and dangerous. Psilocybin is magic mushrooms. MDMA is the active ingredient in ecstasy. We know these things as recreational drugs that are completely illegal. And we've been told they're dangerous. Which is quite a backwards attitude towards these substances which can also be used as medicines. But that's what Dr. Paul Litnitsky is doing. Testing these things out and seeing what is their benefit as a medicine for multiple mental illness and mental health issues, such as MDMA being used as a treatment for PTSD. We also talk a bit about DMT, ayahuasca, things like that. When I announced this interview, someone said to me, you're just doing what Joe Rogan is doing now. No, I'm not, because I'll tell you why. Joe Rogan brings on some comedian and they talk about their DMT trip. What I'm doing is I'm having a conversation with a mental health expert about the field of mental health and psychedelics. 
And this expert is conducting this research under the highest ethical standards in a university, peer-reviewed using the scientific method, with safety in mind. So when I do that on this podcast, that means I also have the safety of the listener in mind. And I know that everything about this conversation is ethical and not in any way irresponsible or misleading. Because that's always something I try to do when I speak about mental health. In particular, when I bring when I bring an expert on and we speak about something like trauma, you always have to be very ethical around something like trauma and keep the listener's safety in mind. Whereas Joe Rogan will bring on an actual dog and then the dog will tell everybody why it's a good idea to inject dog food into the top of our dicks and then people will do it and there's an outbreak of dogs biting the top of everyone's delicious dog food dicks. <laughs> but yeah, I'm look, I'm talking to a fucking expert in their field. In, in, in their particular field of mental health and yes we're talking about drugs that are illegal in Ireland so this isn't espousing I'm not telling everybody go out now and do a lot of magic mushrooms or go out and do a lot of MDMA these are clinical trials and the end goal of this is for substances like psilocybin or MDMA to become legitimate therapeutic practices that can heal people's pain that's the goal of this and that's the work that Dr Paul Litnitsky is doing we had a nice long in-depth interview we covered a lot of stuff and before I get into it I just want to thank everybody for there was magnificent feedback to last week's podcast I got so much lovely feedback and if you if you sent me a DM um, apologies if I didn't get around to answering it I got quite a few but there was just a lot of people, because it was the first week of January, who really needed a bit of a, a mental health podcast last week. And I was so thankful to get all that feedback and to see that some people got some help from it. So thank you for listening last week. And if you're a brand new listener, you can listen to this episode. But I also recommend going back and listening to some earlier episodes of this podcast if you enjoy it. So without further ado... Here is the chat that I had with Dr. Paul Litnitsky of Monash University in Australia. Paul, uh, thank you so much um, for coming on the podcast. Um, the last time we spoke was literally two years ago this month. That's right. That was on stage in Melbourne. Yeah. And the response I got to that podcast was phenomenal. People were so interested in what you're doing and the research that you're conducting what what has happened since that time well it's been a very interesting time on the one hand uh the research has been slowed down by covid we've had uh difficulties getting approval to commence inhuman research uh, due to the pandemic uh, on the other hand we've been uh, preparing a large number of projects uh, mm -hmm. And so over the last couple of years, I've established Australia's first clinical psychedelic lab and have also a number of research trials that are very soon to commence uh, this year in 2022. So, Paul, like just uh, for anyone who hasn't listened to the last podcast, um, like so you're a neuroscientist and you're also trained in psychology. That's correct, isn't it? And what is it exactly that you do? What's this area of research that you're doing? 
So my specialization is in clinical psychedelic research. I've also been involved in uh, other fields of research in uh, psychological sciences, always with a clinical uh, focus. And um, really, I've been involved in establishing a number of Australia's first psychedelic trials. So basically, I run clinical psychedelic research, but that's, uh, you know, rather a, a narrow description of, of the job. You know, it in, involves all kinds of things like uh, recruiting and training psychedelic therapists, um, communicating with regulators around how these drugs will eventually make it to market approval if the evidence comes in, uh, and so on. So there, there, there are many aspects to the job. And what, so when, when I hear the word psychedelic, I think of a drug that you take that makes you hallucinate. Is that what a psychedelic is, or is it more than that? Yeah, it's more than that. In fact, it's interesting that the term hallucinogen was commonly used to describe what we now call psychedelics more commonly. Um, mm -hmm. Yet hallucination uh, is actually not always there. When people consume high-dose psychedelics, people don't always hallucinate. In fact, uh, you know, real paradigmatic hallucinations are rare. Um, psychedelic, the term uh, means literally mind manifesting. And so the basic idea around psychedelics is that these drugs produce experiences that appear to uh, the person undergoing these experiences to reveal their minds to themselves. So it somehow is um, opening up the portal of insight into their own inner process. Um, yeah. Okay, so I've never taken psychedelics, uh, but I have. I've had uh, mental health issues. I've struggled with uh, pretty severe anxiety, depression, and what I've done is attended therapy for many years and used things like emotional intelligence. Uh, meditation is a huge thing for me to observe and be still with parts of my mind that are that in my day-to-day -day that my mind wants to hide from me, you know? Uh, hidden pain, insecurities, all these things. I use CBT therapy, meditation to access these things. Is psychedelic therapy, is that is that the same goal? Yes, in some respects that, that is uh, in common with psychedelic therapies. There are perhaps a few other uh, goals or aspects of psychedelic therapy, I guess, one of the key affordances of psychedelics is that when people attempt to address the sources of their pain and suffering, they're often doing so with the same basic uh, hardware that instantiates the suffering in the first place. And so it's very mm -hmm. difficult to, wow. to kind of work your way out of the, a problem using the same, um, you know, machinery, if you like, that, that uh, builds the problem. Um, and, and many psychotherapists will, will say that a huge amount of their job, the vast majority of their job is helping participants to lower their psychological defenses so that they can have access to, mm -hmm. you know, deeper levels of, of, of uh, themselves and, and, and deeper sources of their pain. Uh, it's, it's no trivial task to, um, to lower those psychological defenses, the, the processes that kind of 
have allowed you to survive. You know, in a sense, we, we often mm-hmm. use the term defences. It's a Freudian term, uh, but really that, that term is somewhat disparaging because these so-called defences have been, in many cases, uh, a person's key ally through their lives. They've had, they've, they have memories or certain kinds of experiences that are overwhelming, that are too hard to bear, they're painful. And the defense mechanism is there to allow you to survive and allow you to kind of get on with your life in some way. And often that just spirals into something, you know, extreme and pathological. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and so in a sense, one of the things that, that psychedelics do, at least initially, is lower the defense barrier quite dramatically. A lot of people will say, I've been, you know, working with these kinds of patterns in my life, these ways of thinking, these beliefs mm-hmm. about myself or the world or others. And it's it's a, an ongoing battle to kind of shift your perspective on things. And then within the first hour or two of a psychedelic experience, the defense barrier just comes down and you have access to a whole lot of material that um, that was just under the surface. But, you know, perhaps over many, many years of psychotherapy, you've not been able to access. So in a way, so when you said there, OK, uh, I've got thought patterns that I repeat about my uh, opinion, thoughts about myself, other people and the world. And like I know that language from cognitive behavioral therapy. So like I was speaking to a neuroscientist called Dr. Ian Robertson on this podcast a few months back and I've used CBT, we'll say, to repattern my brain. I've used, I've, I will challenge myself when I have a negative thought pattern, whatever, and when I do this over and over again, I can repattern the neural pathways in my brain so that I autonomously think in a way that's more helpful for me. So psychedelics could allow someone to get to this in a quicker way. Yes, and also, you know, what you're describing is useful for some people and and it's been useful for you. It takes a lot of motivation because you're having to rehearse and practice again and again. You're kind of swimming upstream. uh, And 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 I'm also, I'm not dealing with any heavy trauma. Right, exactly. And so, you know, in a sense, it depends what the sources of your suffering are. If you have uh, a set of, negative and maladaptive beliefs about yourself that may be set in when you were an adolescent. Uh, you know, there are ways in which something like CBT can be very useful if you put in the time and the practice and you're motivated to keep at it. And, and ultimately as well, Paul, like for me, I knew that that exploration was a safe place. Right. Whereas if I had been someone who had experienced severe abuse or something as a child, which I didn't, I would not feel safe. It would just be too terrifying to, to right. go to where I needed to go. Right. And, and it may be the case that the sources of suffering in, in a person who's had uh, early trauma are pre-verbal. Um, and so wow. you know, cognitive behavioral therapy is, is you know, built on, on, a, on a cognitive linguistic uh, framework. Wow. You know, it's thoughts and words and, and beliefs. Mm-hmm. And if you, have, if you haven't even the ability to articulate your belief because it's so deep, it's in your body. Your body responds to the world in a certain way. You don't even know, for example, that uh, you're riddled with guilt and that that guilt Mm -hmm. is turned inward and now you loathe yourself. If you can't even identify that 
behind your self-loathing is guilt um, and perhaps behind your guilt is uh, love. You know, often that's the case. You know, we grow up mm-hmm. with um, this interesting situation that almost nobody escapes, which is that uh, the people in our early lives who provide us uh, care and who are essential for our survival will often disappoint us or upset us, mm-hmm. sometimes in extreme ways. And yet we cannot um, leave them. You know, our, 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 our program is such that we need to find a way to stay close to them. And, you know, we, it's interesting. We often talk about, uh, you know, parents' unconditional love for their children. Well, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a parent of three kids, and I've never seen unconditional love like the kind of love I receive from my children. You know, mm-hmm. I can make a misstep as a parent, and within no time at all, my children are loving me again. And mm-hmm. you, and so what do you do when your parent has upset you or hurt you or disappointed you? Um, and, and then you... And then you and you feel anger towards them, rage, even murderous rage, to your parents. But of course, your parents are the only people that are between you and the great void. So you have to mm-hmm. find a way to love them. And if you love them and you have murderous rage, well, that often feels like guilt, and oh, and then wow. the guilt can often turn inward. So this is just one example of 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 a kind of common, deep psychological process that is usually not. Um, within somebody's awareness. Uh, and so one of the things that psychedelics do is they they drop these defensive barriers. You kind of are opening up what I call the aperture on mm-hmm. perception. Um, Aldous Huxley famously spoke about something called a reducing valve, and, and modern neuroscience mm-hmm. corroborates his early intuition, which is that the, the kind of central role of of your neurobiological uh, hardware is to constrain your uh, perception of the world in a way that is relevant to your survival, either your bodily survival mm-hmm. or your status survival. And um, and so you're, you're perceiving the world in a highly constrained way. You're looking through a tiny pinprick that is framed by your survival. And psychedelics mm-hmm. just open that up dramatically. And there's neurobiology that, that corroborates that as well. That, uh, you're now... Perceiving the world not constrained solely by your survival and you get more information, that's probably part of why psychedelic experience feels so reliable. A lot of people will report that, uh, that their psychedelic experience felt like they were waking up out of the dream of their lives. And, and that, uh, it- or it feels more real than real. A lot of people say it feels more real than real and they can't explain it when they're out of that experience. Right. And so, you know, my sense is that part of that is because you are genuinely getting more information from more perspectives. My brain, like our brains just process the environment. So our awareness of the environment around us, it's limited by what our brains are processing at that time. So often the question is, is what is reality? Mm. Like, like I always think of the matter that Rene Descartes, that's probably not how you pronounce his name. Descartes had this thought experiment about a bat where he was thinking like a, a bat doesn't see, but a, a bat can navigate a room like as uh, better than a human can. So what is the inside of that bat's mind when it can't see, but yet it can navigate a room as better than a human? Right. And what is that bat's perception of reality? And why is my reality better than a bat's? Right. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, you know, we our, our perception of, of the world and the way we think about the world, the way we make sense of the world is, 
is highly species specific. It's really specific to, to having a human brain. And then it's also quite idiosyncratic to you as an individual. I think, you know, psychedelics open up that frame of reference quite dramatically. Some people think that th that psychedelic experience represents ground truth. I, I think that's rather far-fetched because you're still uh, processing psychedelic experience through a human brain, through a cultural lens, uh, through mm -hmm. you know, your story-making um, that, that, is, that is very idiosyncratic. Um, but it is a wider view. It seems to be a wider view on, on, on reality. You are getting new perspectives. And critically, you know, and, and perhaps different than a lot of people's experience of CBT is that the new kinds of experiences you might have about yourself or the world or others are not just cognitive. They're not just in your head. They tend to come with a lot of uh, emotion and often it's quite somatic, it's bodily. Um, and the feeling is something like a direct encounter. So people will talk not just about having a new idea, They'll talk about a revelation um, mm -hmm. and they'll talk about insights. I mean, my sense is that the insight, the thing that you can actually articulate the next day, you know, where you say you realize, for example, that your angry mother had her own struggles and, mm -hmm. you, and, and you understand her much better now. You, ha you, you had a real, you know, radical empathic sense of what your mother was going through when she was angry with you. Um, it's not just that, you know, you have that thought. It's that you actually felt like your mother. <laughs> you transfigurated into her. Uh, that, that people will often report things like this. And in, in your body and in your emotional life, you have this deep sense of, of who she is and what she was going through. And that wow. feeling... Uh, really leads to compassion, and it's the kind of it's the kind of compassion that lasts. It's not just an idea that you have to kind of practice and maintain in your mind. Like you were there, and and, and that um, sounds like a supernatural empathy. That sounds like a, like a level of empathy that I can't articulate. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, it, it often is like that, and 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 whether it's empathy or some other kind of perspective on life, it it is distinctly psychedelic when it comes with this deep embodied felt sense. And, and that is, you know, we know in psychotherapy that um, words and ideas don't tend to drive change in behavior and attitude and affect very well. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they do for some people. And, and, and you may be, in, you know, an example of somebody who's been able to use some words and ideas to, and, and with a lot of motivation and practice, you drive change incrementally. Um, mm -hmm. But for most people, those words kind of land flat. You know, your, your, your doctor tells you, you're going to die of smoking, you should stop. And yeah. you've been smoking, you know, 30 cigarettes for 30 years. And yes, you know, you're going to leave your young, beautiful daughter without a father in the next, you know, 10 or 20 years or whatever it is, you know, that there may be uh, some widespread ramifications. But the idea that it's unhealthy to smoke just doesn't, just doesn't land. But then when you have these deep psychedelic experiences, what you'll tend to have is it's often a really surprising uh, kind of view on yourself or your life, which makes mm -hmm. sense as well. You know, if, if, you, if you've been attempting to kind of grapple with some struggle in your life for a period of time 
and then you have a psychedelic experience and this immediate change, then, you know, what you'd expect is that something happened that was a bit surprising. It was, it was not what you could have predicted. And so you'll often get uh, a perspective or an experience that um, comes from somewhere in your life or your memory. It can often be even quite visionary. It can be metaphoric, uh, but, it, but it lands in your body. You really feel it. You feel, for example, the real pain of losing a father or a father that's somehow absent mm-hmm. because of you know, an addiction or something like that. And that pain sits in your body, and that is the kind of thing that drives motivation to change. And so one thing as well with the the way that you're speaking, Paul, and I can imagine it presents a lot of difficulty for you in your field, is that you're you're speaking in a way that like our our Western society and our Western way of thinking, which is based on rationalism, when you speak, you don't sound like a scientist because you're speaking about things like revelation, things that we view as esoteric, almost spiritual as a way, which in our society, we tend to, to go, that stuff doesn't really have value. Mm. We're evidence-based here. Like, y- there's no way for you to have these conversations without you stepping outside the language of rationality and, and what is observable objectively. Like, h- yeah. how does that... That surely that creates problems in your like you're working in a university you're a scientist H- how the fuck and you're bringing up Aldous Huxley like <laughs> an occultist how does this work for you it's a it's a great insight blind boy that's true uh, you know I guess um what I would say is that for me personally it's really important to speak about and resist this rather lazy and false dichotomy between uh, hyper-materialist and and rational uh, views of the world, on the one hand, and uh, esoterica or spirituality or religiosity on the other hand. I don't fall into either of those camps. And and my sense is that we need to begin to articulate a new kind of framework and a new kind of language that can hold the... um, what, what seems to matter under psychedelics and what seems to drive change under psychedelics. A lot of people will have these experiences that are, um, that are very profound. You know, the vast majority of people that have um, supported psychedelic experiences in these clinical trials will rate the psychedelic experience as among the most personally meaningful experience of their lives. And often the experience is hard to rationalize, hard to hard to understand or comprehend. It can seem like it has a lot of wisdom, for example. It seems like, you know, for some people, it seems like it was too perfect a lesson with a narrative arc uh, that, that, you know, it, it had to have been designed by something. Um, yeah. my, my intuitions and my feelings uh, are, are not uh, – aligned with that. I mean, I really feel like there's plurality of experience here and I I let everybody have their own uh, language and interpretation of this. But personally, I I don't have a spiritual or religious frame on this at all. I think there is a way to naturalize the most profound uh, experiences that seem to, um, you know, go outside the domain of, of, of ordinary experience. Psychedelic experience is non-ordinary. Um, and, you know, we can, we can get into the details of, of what that might be. But, but 
yeah, I don't fall into the camp of, of, of saying this is, uh, you know, these are spiritual experiences or they come with some uh, higher powers, intentionality or anything like that. There is a huge amount of information right below the surface of, of usual ordinary awareness and psychedelics are allowing you access to that information um, in an unprecedented way. And, and that information is not just cognitive. It's really, it, it, it's, it's broad information. It's, it's bodily, it's affective, and uh, its usefulness is not, uh, you know, by design. I also don't feel, by the way, in a related uh, topic, I don't feel that psychedelic experience uh, or psychedelics themselves, like psilocybin or LSD or whatever, mm-hmm. hold uh, any innate wisdom or any innate usefulness, you know, of their own. There's this kind mm-hmm. of interesting, unwitting alliance between, you know, traditional psychiatrists on the one hand who say that, you know, the the uh, therapeutics are within the molecule, and on the other hand, you have you know neo shamanic uh, psychonauts who say. The, the healing is within Mother Aya or, the, you know, or the mycelium intelligence or whatever, you know, whatever yeah. frame it is. There's a, it, I feel like there's an unwitting alliance there, you know, and, and it's problematic because actually uh, our own path out of suffering and distress is, in my view, dependent on our own efforts, our own capacities, our own path, our own, uh, our own um, uh, trajectory. And, uh, you know, while we can have all kinds of assistance, you can have assistance from a psychotherapist or a friend or a drug, mm-hmm. uh, it's really just that. It's assistance. It's possible assistance. Uh, but you have to do the work. It's not a one and done. It doesn't, it doesn't solve your problems. It doesn't heal you. In the mm-hmm. case of psychedelics where you often see rapid um, therapeutic benefits. You also see a lot of uh, pain and encountering uh, distressing material. Like it's not for free. Uh, I don't think mm-hmm. there is a free lunch. <laughs> uh, you re- you have to do the work, and the faster you go, the more it hurts. Um, what would you say? Um, so something like psilocybin that you mentioned there, like that. That's like magic mushrooms, mushrooms that you can pick up off the ground contain psilocybin. Do you ever think that there's an evolutionary reason or an evolutionary symbiotic relationship between human beings and these mushrooms? The fact that that a human 10,000 years ago could walk into a forest, pick up this one mushroom, and they could have had an experience that helped them through to understand themselves. Do you think that's evolutionary? Yeah, you know, I've, I've always had um, something of a sympathy for uh, what Terence McKenna called the stoned ape hypothesis, uh, but yes. I don't think we'll ever know the answer to that. I mean, basically, you know, the well, idea- what is the stoned ape hypothesis for people who don't know? Yeah, the idea is basically that we have um, a an explanatory gap in in the evolutionary um, uh, data whereby our monkey ancestors seem to make a dramatic and rapid leap in their ability to think and use tools and negotiate complex social environments with very little development in their neurobiology. Like their brains changed very little over the period of time in which um, 
cultural and intellectual evolution seem to be, you know, dramatic. And, mm-hmm. um, and so one idea um, that, and Terence McKenna wasn't the first to, to name it up, but uh, he, he certainly popularized the idea that, um, you know, that it's likely given magic mushrooms grow in about 100 uh, species uh, and, sorry, uh, psilocybin is in about 100 species of, of, of mushroom and grows mm-hmm. all over the world almost, it's very likely that some uh, um, primate would have eaten a mushroom and if they, if they did eat a mushroom, the kinds of experiences they had given uh, the potential for psychedelics to produce dramatic insight and new creative perspectives on things and problem solving and all sorts, uh, that that may have played a, a substantial part in the kind of intellectual, cognitive and social evolution of our species. I don't think we'll ever be able to uh, prove that one way or the other, but I think it's mm-hmm. it's an interesting idea. And, and also, you know, possibly um, these mushrooms may have played a large part in the evolution of proto-religions and, and early religious so we're just going to take a tiny little break from the interview there now. That last word that Paul said there was early religious thinking um, got cut off. We're going to take a little break so that we can hear some digitally inserted adverts. So let's have the ocarina pause. I don't, I don't have the ocarina with me this week. What I do have is a very interesting lighter. Now, because of the pandemic, I haven't smoked a cigarette in nearly two and a half years because I haven't been like I don't smoke cigarettes. But if I'm out having a pint and someone has a cigarette, I'd probably smoke one. But I think that's gone out of my system now forever. I don't think I ever want a cigarette again. So I'm left with this really beautiful lighter that I bought. It doesn't use a flame. It uses plasma, which is a superheated gas. This is the coolest lighter I've ever had in my life. Like, you press the button to light your cigarette and and it's like a laser or something. It's, It's absolutely bizarre. But it makes quite a nice little electric noise. So we'll have the plasma lighter pause. I'm going to click the plasma lighter a couple of times and then you might hear a digitally inserted advert that's algorithmically tailored towards you and your needs. Let's go. Nearly burnt the top of the microphone there. i got to be careful. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's hot plasma.
Yeah, danger of burning the foam on the top of the microphone. So that was the plasma lighter pause. I hope you enjoyed that. If you're a first time listener, you, you haven't a fucking clue what's going on. Fuck it. Sit with that anxiety. Sit with the anxiety of not knowing what that just was. So, support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. If you listen to this podcast, if you enjoy it, if it's giving you solace, a bit of fun, just please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. This podcast is my full-time job. It's how I earn a living. And because of the Patreon page, I'm able to make the podcast and do it as my full-time job and put it out each and every week. And I adore doing this work. But if you're consuming it and enjoying it, just please consider paying me for it. But if you can't afford it, you're out of work, whatever the fuck, don't worry about it. You can listen for free. And the person who's paying is paying so that you can listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast. I get to earn a living. The Patreon also keeps the podcast independent. No advertiser can come in here and tell me what to talk about. Like there's loads of advertisers who'd be like, you're not doing a podcast about magic mushrooms. I don't give a shit if they're clinical trials. That doesn't fit with our brand. Don't do a podcast about magic mushrooms. Well, piss off, is what I can say to him. So the Patreon keeps this podcast independent and it means that I can make the content that I want to make and put out the podcast that I want to put out. And support all independent podcasts, not just mine. The podcast space over COVID has become flooded with quite a lot of corporate money and a huge amount of quite low quality but big budget podcasts are being released all the time. And what this does is it drowns and silences small independent creators that are passionate about what they're making because that's what podcasts should be so whatever podcast you're listening to if it has a small team of people or maybe one person support it any way you can monetarily or just tell people about it and share it follow me on instagram blind by boat club and catch me on twitch once a week thursdays half eight twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast and the patreon once again, is patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. Please consider giving me the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. That's what keeps this podcast going. Now back to the talk with Dr. Paul Litnitsky from Monash University. So a question for you as a, as a neuroscientist. What, like, what happens to the human brain? What's going on inside the human brain when someone takes a psychedelic? And also, if you could speak about... When people say that they get ego death, that they, they they lose sense of who they are and there's no sense of self, what's going on in the brain when that happens? Basically, the term psychedelic um, is used currently to refer to the classic psychedelics, which are LSD and psilocybin and magic mushrooms and DMT and those kinds of substances, and then also a, a set of psychedelic-like uh, substances like MDMA and mm-hmm. Ibogaine, and some people even use it to refer to ketamine. How you do the psychedelic uh, is, is part of the definition, because if if we're going to define the term in terms of its in terms of mind manifesting capabilities, then you know if you take MDMA and you bounce up and down at a party with your friends it, it may be mm-hmm. the case that none of your mind was really manifest to yourself over that time whereas if you lie down with eye shades and 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 a soundtrack and and some therapeutic intentions and support 
uh, and you lie there for eight hours, then often MDMA is psychedelic. So uh, cannabis mm-hmm. as well can be psychedelic. It really depends how you use it. Um, so when we talk about uh, j- just kind of constraining this uh particular neurobiological question to the classic psychedelics like psilocybin and LSD, um, there are a number of key neurobiological changes under psychedelics that that we know something about. It's still reasonably early in the field. You know, um, the the neurobiology of psychedelics has only begun uh, to, to, it's only been a field for for a small number of years. Um, Mm -hmm. And and it's also worth just saying as another tangent that my view is that neurobiology is not, at this point in time, the most powerful level of explanation for psychedelic effects in in a therapeutic Wow. So a lot of people will kind of say, well... And neurobiology there means that the the internal workings of just, just the brain. Well, our understanding of that, I mean, my view is that for every experience, there is a neurological correlate. Um, But we are, I think a long way, hundreds, maybe even thousands of years from having uh, an understanding of the neural correlates of what matters under psychedelics. I think we can get far more granular and get far more insight into how these substances work for therapeutic ends if we talk about subjective experience. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, I think there is something interesting happening uh, in, in con- contemporary neurobiological um studies of, of psychedelics. So I'll tell you just, you know, two, you know, broad findings that have been uh, replicated in a couple of studies. Uh, the one is that uh, while people expected that the brain under psychedelics would just become hyperactive, you know, given the nature of psychedelic experience being so intense and multifaceted and wild in, in so many ways, people expected that the, the most consistent uh, neurobiological change would just be that the brain lights up in different ways to a greater mm-hmm. degree. Actually, the most consistent finding is that one b- a large hub of, of um, neural networks um, quietens down. And that hub is referred mm-hmm. to as the default mode network. It's kind of like your background idle. Um, mm-hmm. It's what is most active when you're not attempting any task. It was discovered, mm-hmm. the default mode network is discovered by accident, when people were lying in fMRI scanners waiting for the next instructions or just, you know, in a rest phase. Wow. And people over many studies and many different groups realized that the same basic structure was lighting up when people were not asked to do anything. Um, and so that's like our background idol. That's why we refer to it as default. And it tends to um, instantiate uh, capacities like self uh, reference. So when you're thinking about how something matters to you, or you're thinking about mm-hmm. yourself in a particular way, default mode network lights up. When you're thinking about the past or the future, mental time travel, default mode network is at play. Um, and, and right there, you can see the building blocks of psychopathology. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. you know, We're thinking about the past, thinking about the future, thinking about how it matters to you. Those are, are yeah, that right there. You're describing like when I experience mental health issues or I get a flare up of anxiety, I'm focusing on the past or the future and not spending a hell of a lot of time being present in my body in the here and now, right? Which requires effort, right? And and which is why you know you practice mindfulness and why it's useful. Yeah. For, or part of why it's useful for you is because it brings you back into the present moment. 
uh, which is and, and my entire body that's a huge thing for me with mindfulness is when I practice it I'm aware of my feet I'm aware of my hands I'm aware of my experience of time my emotions there's a whole lot going on and this leads to mental health and a better quality of life but when I'm not and I'm pacing around the place and I'm losing time and I'm thinking of the past and the future then I'm suffering exactly exactly and you know what you can see there is and and we see this consistently across different uh, um, capacities of the human brain is that um, there's a shadow side to our greatest strengths you know like as an animal one of our greatest strengths is our ability to um, become abstract in our thinking to plan far into the Mm -hmm. future to to work in a way that is you know highly detached from perceptual awareness you know to plan to think to um to philosophize um to be creative to be creative to strategize all these things are kind of you know key to our uh, you know strength uh, as a as a species but also the shadow side in my view is basically um you know mental illness um mm-hmm. so so one of the things that happens under psychedelics is the default mode network quietens down and that allows for other parts of your brain to light up because the one of the things that the default mode network does and indeed uh, almost all networks in the brain do is they inhibit other networks there's a kind of competition in the brain that happens so um you know some people will say um you know what a shame that we only use say 10% of our brains, wouldn't it be great if we could use all of it? Well, actually, no, (laughs) it would be a total mess and chaos if every part of your brain was lit up at the same time. The only way you get specificity, the only way you get um, any capacity is if only certain parts of your brain are are activated at at a given time. And and that is achieved in your brain through um, competition between different structures. And, and the, the majority of, of neurons in your brain are actually inhibitory neurons. The majority of your neurons are inhibiting other neurons. Um, mm-hmm. so, um, so what happens when the default mode network quietens down is that a whole lot of typically inhibited structures light up. And that's part of this kind of expanding on, on Aldous Huxley's reducing valve, where information that you're not normally aware of is now uh, flooding in. And, and is this the information that's in your unconscious mind? Yes, you could say so. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's information that's in your unconscious mind, or even just um, memories that you don't have access to. It's you know, mm-hmm. it's fascinating when we we a, a group of us um, trained up with MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies in uh, MDMA therapy for PTSD, and part mm-hmm. of the training was watching you know a huge number of uh, videos of people. Um, undergoing MDMA treatment for their PTSD. And that, mm-hmm. this is just one example of uh, a, 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 a kind of disinhibition of, of memory stores whereby people who had been seeking therapy for over a decade for some um, index trauma that might have happened, say, you know, in a war situation, mm-hmm. um, suddenly, you know, so they're kind of processing what happened in the war 10 or 15 years ago you know, weekly for years and years and years. And then under MDMA, they suddenly find themselves remembering the events of their index trauma in super slow-mo, high definition, 
the most granular details you could wow. imagine that they had no access to previously, and they recounting it, you know, all the, the details uh, that, that happened in those 25 seconds before the bomb went off. Wow. I've never had any, any major trauma, but obviously I have had instances where, you know, when you cross the road and you almost get hit by a truck, mm. you know, little things like that that are very, very frightening. And for a second, you feel like I'm going to die. And I've had a couple of those moments and it fucks with your perception of time. Right. You know, I'm, I'm a little bit rattled for the rest of the day. Now, I can only amplify that by a thousand for someone who's experienced severe trauma. So are you saying that something like MDMA will allow a person to safely revisit the memories that their brain has locked away so that they can relive that moment with, with a bit of safety. Yeah, that's one key aspect to MDMA treatment, um, which is um, exposure therapy. Is that the anxiety therapy exposure, like where if someone's afraid of spiders, you gradually introduce them to a, a spider in the room? Right, exactly. And with something like yeah. PTSD, it's often like imaginal exposure. So you go back mm -hmm. to the traumatic events in your memory and you attempt to kind of grade up your um, imaginal exposure to that over time. But as you said, without psychedelics, you're using the mechanics that are already not working for you. Exactly. Well, so this is this, this, this kind of, you know, two problems. One is that uh, people will often find it overwhelming to return to uh, traumatic events and, and, and they'll, mm -hmm. they'll simply not do it. They'll walk away or, mm -hmm. or, uh, or, become, or, or feel re-traumatized, but also... Um, even if they are, even if you've created a degree of safety and, and they're willing uh, to go back as best they can, um, their brains don't allow full access typically. And so, um, yeah, exactly. Wow. So the, the, what MDMA allows for, you know, it, one, of the, one of the effects of MDMA, which is different than the classic psychedelics like psilocybin, is that it dramatically reduces um, distress or, or increase mm -hmm. tolerance for distress. So things that are typically overwhelming or too painful to bear become far more tolerable and safe. And so people will go back to memories and relive them in, in a far more detailed way. And it's not only the reliving, it's not only the kind of return in memory that, that matters, it's that there's this capacity to reappraise those memories so you're now going back to the memory but your body is not flooded with adrenaline and you're not feeling you know shit scared while you're dragging mm -hmm. yourself through the memories you're actually uh, in a different state you might be feeling philosophical or curious mm -hmm. or uh, you might be feeling a lot of love for yourself in that memory or mm -hmm. for you know some perpetrator of a crime even some sort of uh, forgiveness or compassion or a very different kind of um, emotional context is playing up while you're revisiting and that's kind of that's key to exposure working exposure works when people can reappraise when they can go back and they can find a new way of encountering that memory so that your system your brain and and, and your bodily system that's that's associated doesn't feel like it is under threat currently just because you've heard a chopper in the sky. So ju just to use a little metaphor to, to help me understand this better, 
when I was a little kid, I used to be very afraid of religious statues. There was a lot of religious statues in Ireland. Mm. And I used to be terrified of like, I'm like four and Christ is crucified. Right. And it's in my school. And I don't really understand it, but I see it as a very violent image. Yeah. And I started to get very frightened of it. And I would run past the statue of Christ. I couldn't look at it. And then one day my mother just took me to the statue and she was there. Now, it wasn't a religious thing. She was she didn't give a fuck about Christ. She's just like, I don't want my kid being afraid of a statue. But I, I was able to stand by the statue of Christ to look at it because my mother was there with me mm. and I felt safe now. And then I stopped being afraid of the statue of Christ because the safety that my mother being there with me was like, it's still frightening, but this loving person is here with me to describe it to me and explain it and then lo and behold i'm not scared of statues anymore right what yeah. you're describing sounds a little bit similar to that it's like the mdma yeah whatever feelings i was feeling the love from my mother the safety the confidence of nothing that's going to go wrong yeah. i was able to process that little fear i had of statues except yeah. this is doing it as an adult and you're your own love that's right exactly well said um that, that's really what, what is uh, doing a lot of the work with MDMA therapy, yeah. And MDMA, of course, that's otherwise known as ecstasy for people who, who who aren't aware, isn't it? That's right. Although, you know, street ecstasy, given we have this unfortunate war on drugs and prohibition, street ecstasy often uh, contains very little MDMA. But, okay. uh, yeah, yeah, that's what we tend to refer to it as. Yeah. Um, what, what's your opinion on, like, immediately when you say LSD, I get terrified. Like I, I would never do LSD because I just grew up with horrendous stories of like Sid Barrett in Pink Floyd who took too much and destroyed his mind or they'd say similar things about Brian Wilson who was in the Beach Boys. He took too much LSD and never came back. What's your opinion on, on that? Is that a thing that can... And that was a quite a lot of questions I got. People being terrified of... I like the sound of this psychedelic therapy, but what happens if I become someone who never comes back? Right. Yeah, I understand that fear, and it's quite widespread. You know, psychedelic experiences are not without risks, but I would say as important as what drug you take and what dose you take is the extra pharmacological factors, the stuff that is not the drug. So how much mm -hmm. preparation you've had, how well supported you are, what is the physical context in which this happened. So in our trials, um, we are not delivering drugs. We are delivering a form of facilitated psychotherapy. You're not just talking about, here's a pill, go away and take this. You're no. speaking about, we're gonna, uh, you're going to take some psilocybin, but also there's therapy, the mood, the color in the room, the sounds that are used. It's a full sensory experience. Yeah. What would someone who's doing one of your tri trials, first off, who is the type of person that you'd like to do this trial? And what does it look like from day one to begin this? What's the whole process? Yeah, good question. So, um, you know, before describing the, the uh, treatment protocol, it's worth just saying that um, if, you, if you have psychedelic experiences in a way that is well supported, um, and, and with adequate preparation, it tends to be really safe. And, and this idea that you have one psychedelic experience and you go mad is, is a dramatically inflated fear, um, but it really matters how you do it. However, I would just say um, there are a, a number of uh, issues 
that, that people suffer with that uh, lead them to be excluded from participation in these trials. And so it may be the case that certain vulnerabilities, that people that struggle with certain kinds of issues may not be um, best place to have safe psychedelic experiences. So, Like, do you mean somebody who is already uh, experiencing difficulty with psychosis? Right. So we exclude psychosis, schizophrenia, etc., uh, and we also exclude um, a, a number of issues of, of um, uh, pathological liability like um, bipolar disorder and mm-hmm. uh, borderline personality disorder and other personality disorders. Um, you know, the, the evidence is not yet in on the safety profile for these cohorts of people. But, you know, we did see in the in the first wave of psychedelic psychiatry through the 50s and 60s that people with schizophrenia who were given high-dose LSD tended, on average, to get worse. Um, Mm -hmm. We have also seen a few cases of um, psychedelic-induced psychosis, but, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not clear whether whether all those individuals had an underlying vulnerability for psychosis uh, already. And, you know, psychosis vulnerability can can lead to a psychotic break through mm-hmm. all kinds of traumatic experiences you can have you know if your parents get divorced uh, that can trigger a psychotic break so something like mm-hmm. a psychedelic experience um, may just simply be overwhelming in the moment and that can trigger a, a psychotic break but it tends to be uh, very very rare it looks like it is all related to psychotic vulnerability um, and so, uh, you know, I would just say we have to hold these two in hand. One is that psychedelics are not safe for everybody. And two, if done really well, psychedelics are really safe for the vast majority of people. Um, are, are, rare, are, are really safe. Yes, are really safe. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, so to go to your question around what it looks like from the participant perspective. So um, we recruit participants uh, in, in a highly rigorous way. So people are screened uh, multiple times for safety. And um, mm-hmm. and so while it's not the case for all trials that, that this happens, we, we in our trials at Monash University that will be kicking off in the, in the next couple of months, um, we are recruiting people who are physically well uh, mm-hmm. and have a psychiatric diagnosis. Depends on the trial, you know, what psychiatric diagnosis we're dealing with. Uh, they can have some comorbidities, so some, some degree of other issues, but there are all kinds of psychiatric diagnoses that exclude people, like, as we just described, um, mm-hmm. psychosis. And so they go through this rigorous screening process, and then, they, they, then they, they're screened in, and they will be taken through the entire protocol, which is usually two to three months of treatment, uh, by two trained and experienced psychotherapists who are there with them every every step of the way. And they will undergo a number of prep preparatory sessions. These are, these are non-drug psychotherapy sessions that involve establishing uh, rapport and therapeutic alliance and, mm-hmm. and working uh, to, um, to basically get that so launch. This is even before psychedelics are taken, the, right. the therapeutic alliance is established and, a, and a, a safe environment is established. Right. And you're also doing kind of psycho, psychedelic education. So, you know, understanding what psychedelic experience is about wow. and how to navigate that terrain. So you kind of are preparing a launch pad and the, the therapists of ground control 
participant is the astronaut, and mm-hmm. um, you're going you're gonna to fire them off, you know, through the stratosphere onto um, an alien planet. And so you want to you do as much as you can to get that uh, launch pad uh, well prepared. And one of the key elements of the preparatory phase is allowing people to find uh, as much trust as they can. Uh, a key mantra in psychedelic therapy is trust, let go, be open. Because mm-hmm. fundamentally, psychedelic experience is impossible to predict, is surprising in all kinds of ways, and is often profound and meaningful and also challenging. Um, mm-hmm. Many people describe their clinical psychedelic experiences as among the most challenging experiences of their lives as well. So you do these preparatory sessions, and then when the participant is ready, we have uh, in one trial in our psilocybin for generalized anxiety disorder trial, we have two high-dose psilocybin sessions. These are eight-hour-long sessions. And are you giving people a mushroom? Are you giving someone a dried mushroom? Or, or no, how do you prepare uh, it? We, we don't, and, and nor do any of the contemporary trials um, using psilocybin. It's all uh, pure medical-grade synthetic psilocybin. So you're not even getting this from mushrooms. You're synthesizing the chemicals that are present in the mushrooms. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, so these p- participants will have uh, a psychedelic experience alongside the support of, of these two therapists who are there with them. And there's a very particular way of, of you know, best practice psychedelic support. It doesn't look like standard psychotherapy at all. And are these people like, I have depression, I have anxiety, or is it? Or is it? I have complex PTSD. Like, does someone have to be very extreme, or could it be someone who simply, I keep getting anxiety attacks. I'd, I'd kind of like to not have them anymore. Yeah. So it depends on the trial and depends on the research question. So in our psilocybin for generalized anxiety disorder trial, they need to have a diagnosis of GAD, and okay, and it needs to be quite severe. Um, okay. In ter- we, we are also establishing an MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder trial. And, and there, they also have to have a PTSD diagnosis and it also needs to be quite severe. But my view is that while psychedelics have been investigated over the last 25 years, primarily in the context of what we refer to as treatment resistance, which is people who have not found adequate uh, relief from their mental distress with a whole range of other interventions that are available Mm -hmm. or with palliative patients, people that are dying. My view is Mm -hmm. that that has been primarily a kind of cultural um, rationale uh, around the acceptance of these drugs and the understanding of their safety. I I think that actually psychedelics, uh, psychedelic assisted therapy are therapies are um, potentially uh, an appropriate first-line treatment, so not just for the most severe and not just for those mm-hmm. who haven't responded to other treatments. Um, but depending on the trial, uh, we may have some of those constraints around treatment resistance. So you may have had to have had uh, you know, a, a number of failed uh, uh, drug treatments previously or, or similar. Um, and so then after the high-dose session, uh, which lasts the full day, uh, people are uh, generally... Um, spending a lot of their time lying down on a, in, on a comfortable couch in a room that is uh, looks much more like a you know a retreat spa than it does like mm-hmm. a hospital room. Um, there's a lot of attention paid to the physical setting. What's the role of music? The role of smells? The role of colors? The role of lighting? 
Yeah, so we don't go for like a, a, a super multi-sensory intervention per se. I mean, we create an environment that is um, comfortable and conducive, uh, but um, we're not using these tools in a systematic, deliberate way as part of the intervention. They're optional tools and people can uh, use them or not. They have uh, music and, and the playlist is there and is often very supportive. Who picks that? I mean, what if this person, who picks that music? If, like if the person particularly enjoys Coldplay, yeah. are they allowed to do that or do you guys choose the music? No, in our case, we choose the music. We have a couple, we have three options. One is the playlist, which has a trajectory that's built in that maps to psychedelic experience in some way. Like, how do you, how do you decide that? Like, that's amazing. It's, it's, a, it's an art and it won't work for everybody. And, and some of the early evidence shows that some participants will say that the music seemed to be uh, getting in the way of their experience. And so we have these other options. One option is that you can switch over to just nature sounds, you know, birds tweeting mm-hmm. and, and, and um, you know, waves crashing. Or you can just t- take it off and have silence. Um, but uh, th- the approach to the music that we foster in the participants is a little bit like the approach to all the experiences that come up. It's not about curating um, an ideal and comfortable experience. It's about an attitude of curiosity and openness with whatever comes up. So, yes, if you really think the music is getting in the way of your process, you, you switch or you take it off. But if the music is just upsetting, we will encourage people to lean into what is upsetting for them. So there's continual dialogue. How is the music working for you? Is this there's continual dialogue throughout? Well, we t- you know often with the with psilocybin uh, experiences, people are not speaking for a lot of the peak phase. Uh, okay. They're not able to speak, and, and speaking tends to be uh, you know a defence and, and 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 also disruptive. With MDMA, there is much more conversation, um, but no, we're not we're not having uh, you know a lot of conversation about tweaking things. Uh, it's really about leaning into you know the deeper processes that are happening f- for the person. Um, but in the preparatory phase, we kind of gear people up for the music, as one example. And um, and yes, there's no there's no perfect playlist for everybody, but uh, but really that's uh, that doesn't matter. Uh, you know, m- the music is. It has its function, you know, it can be uh, facilitatory, it can kind of open people's hearts up in the early phase, it can provide some sort of grounding and comfort in, in, in the later phase. We tend to, in our work, um, follow the um, non-directive principle as best we can with the music. So non-directive um, approach is, is key to psychedelic psychotherapy during the dosing sessions, which is that you are really, as a therapist, not attempting interventions. You're there for support. Um, and this process was was really developed through the, the early wave of psychedelic psychiatry where psychotherapeutic interventions um, tended to be disruptive to participants. Mm-hmm. Participants are in a very deep state. They're often not able to speak or describe where they're at. And the therapist... Uh, trying to do something uh, in a psychotherapeutic way is often just, uh, you know, getting in the way of, of, of a participant who's making a beeline for the most, you know, useful or painful information. Uh, and the music can also be directive in ways. Uh, and we mm-hmm. tend to, for the peak phase, uh, have that music be a little bit more in the background. So it's just like a golden thread or a hand held uh, out and open. If you need it, it's there. If you don't need it, you, you forget about it. 
Now I'm going to ask your opinion on something which which you're not working with, but I'm a lot of the questions I got, and one thing I'm really fascinated with is things like DMT, five meo DMT, which is particularly powerful, or even salvia divinorum. Like I know people who have have taken these substances recreationally, and they literally describe they visit what they describe as heaven. They leave all objective reality, and they're in fucking heaven or like what's going on in the brain of someone who takes something like dmt or 5meo dmt yeah these are you know fascinating molecules these um rapid onset uh psychedelics and and it's it's really not yet clear what's happening in the brain um you know there are just the the beginnings of uh therapeutic applications of drugs like DMT and 5-MeO-DMT happening now. Uh, so the jury's still out on, on their therapeutic utility. There's a lot of interest in these substances uh, in part because uh, they're much shorter acting. You know, so an MDMA yeah. or a psilocybin uh, treatment session is a long day, um, whereas uh, something like DMT, you can do a two-hour session and uh, mm-hmm. and that uh, you know is is more billable and more uh, pr- practically um, uh, appropriate in the in, in the medical context. But um, you know, I guess I would say it, these are fascinating substances with fascinating experiences uh, that are associated with them. It's also interesting to 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 consider their ability to uh, provide the kinds of shifts in perspective and the kinds of shifts in, in attitude and behavior that matter uh, for people who are trying to get their lives back on track. Because in this mm-hmm. case, you're kind of rocketed out onto a completely unrecognizable uh, planet over the course of 10 seconds. You, mm-hmm. You're not able to take your biography and your memories and yourself along for the ride. And then you, you drop back almost as quickly and while you're there in this other realm, um, very little of your yourself is there, and that you know may provide a whole lot of benefit. Uh, my my hunch, but it'll it'll play out in the data over the next five years. My hunch is that we may see that these fast-acting psychedelics like DMT are useful in more useful in a chemotherapeutic way than a psychotherapeutic way. And I'll try and explain that. So with psychedelics, what we, what we see with something like psilocybin is for a period of one to three weeks after the high dose psilocybin, we have something called an afterglow phenomenon where people feel noticeably and spontaneously in a different state and and they're Mm -hmm. doing things differently. They, they, they walking by the river um, listening to music or they're having honest conversations or they're crying when they wouldn't mm-hmm. normally or, you know, things are different for them. And then that afterglow wanes and what mm-hmm. you're left with is, you know, potentially nothing or or some shift in your beliefs or some shift in uh, your, your style of relating to yourself or the world. And, um, and so... In a sense, you know, one of the ways I think about it is that you've got chemical therapeutics that are directly related to this molecule in your brain. Um, obviously, chemotherapeutic um, 
effects drive the acute psychedelic experience, that eight hours of mm-hmm. tripping is chemotherapeutically driven. And then my guess is that... There's... What is chemotherapy? Like when I hear chemotherapy, I think of cancer. What, what ah, context are you so, using it in here? So I, I'm using it to refer to um, a, a process that is driven fundamentally or better understood fundamentally as uh, molecular activity in the brain. Um, okay. That, that, that it really doesn't, you know, that it's not about your psychotherapeutic or psychological processes oh, as much okay. as it is about, you know, molecules causing the change. Yeah. It's like inebriation. Right. Yeah. So it's clear that the fundamental uh, cause of a psychedelic experience is that you've got a psychedelic uh, drug docking in receptors in your brain. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It's not about your state. It's not about your attitude or what you're thinking about, as much as it is that the molecule is in your brain driving the change. Do you think this is why, like, so many people have? So when people take DMT, a lot of people have a very, very similar experiences. They visit a place that they describe as heaven, and then they meet these beings that they refer to as the elves in the machine, and these beings are like bejeweled basketballs that are fun, <laughs> and they they kind of. They make fun of you, and yeah. everyone has this experience. Yeah, and it's that particular quality that makes people believe that DMT is like supernatural, right. or that you literally do visit the same place. Right. Yeah. Look, uh, you know, a lot of people have common experiences with DMT. It's worth saying that you know, a lot of people that have DMT are also swimming in the same cultural soup and the same uh, oh. expectations and ideas. Um, I'm not sure. So if you if you want to meet the elves, you're going to meet the elves because you've been told the elves exist. Right. And, and uh, you know, that, that's, that, that would be my uh, sense that maybe there are some species-specific and, and human brain-specific kinds of alterations that lead to seeing certain kinds of things. But, you know, when people, you know, when, when, when a devout Christian takes psilocybin or LSD, they tend to have Christ encounters. And when, mm-hmm. uh, you know... A, a, a Amazonian shaman will take ayahuasca. They'll tend to have Mother Aya encounters and, and Jaguar mm-hmm. encounters, and you know, so it's very hard to separate out uh, cultural and expectancy, um, you know, o- overlays from you know innate effects of a drug. Uh, Do you think our Western way of thinking and culture is a barrier to this therapy? Because if we're being honest, a lot of the stuff we're describing in our culture is rubbished. Right. It's not taken seriously, and right. it's 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 rubbished. It really is. If you if you say to somebody, uh, "I took mushrooms yesterday and I had a profound experience, and I can't describe it," most people will go, "That person's crazy. I don't get that." Yeah, yeah. And this is a flaw of our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I I say that because. I'm an artist, and when I create art, I experience a thing called creative flow, mm. or I lose sense of self. And I just stop. I've, I've stopped saying it to people because they think I'm mad. Sure, but sure. I know it's real and I know it's very helpful. And to be honest, it's 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 my favorite part of being alive. Yeah. But I've stopped telling people. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's possible that um, the distance between our cultural norms in the West and psychedelic experience is um, the size of the opportunity of psychedelic experiences for us. You know, maybe uh, mm-hmm. there is something more um, useful for a contemporary Western person to undergo a psychedelic experience and bring them more, you know, in contact with, with other aspects of their lives and their priorities that matter. Um, but, you know, I think what you're describing is potentially less 
relevant to psychedelic experience and more relevant to how you unpack that in your life thereafter. And I think mm-hmm. we have a big job uh, in, yeah. in in the West to kind of build the um, the kind of the cultural um, norms and the language that will, will be an appropriate place to to land psychedelic experience that that hasn't uh, happened to, to any substantial degree and also too like something that has done quite a I don't want to use the word damage but like I love science I adore science and you're working in the field of science but the Western love of science since the Enlightenment is what has created this extreme rationalism that rubbishes anything that we would perceive as a uh, spiritual. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and you're like, it's almost like, how the fuck do you make this research work within the Western scientific method? Mm. Well, again, I feel like, yes, the challenge is great, but the opportunity is similarly great because... My view yeah. is that there is something incredibly special about the sharp, bright spotlight of, um, you know, post-enlightenment uh, intellect. You know, there's something mm-hmm. incredibly impressive in the evolution of our species that is manifest now as, um, you know, incredibly precise and deep and thorough uh, thought. And... Mm-hmm. Yes, that may have come at a cost to other kinds of experiences, other modes of being, other priorities in our lives. But perhaps um, if we can avoid just having two buckets where you're either, you know, um, you know a rational materialist that, uh, that, that, that won't entertain any new kinds of experiences or mm-hmm. you're a kind of esoteric spiritualist who um, has a whole alternative view on the physical world and everything else, the metaphysical world. Yeah, we don't have an in-between right now. Right, and I think there's an opportunity. I think there's an opportunity there that psychedelics uh, potentially afford, which is that for people who have uh, the capacity for kind of uh, clear, rational intellect and deep thought uh, to then expand um, the kind of the range of experience and incorporate that, that wider range in, in, in a better understanding of themselves of the world. Uh, but yes, it, it is a challenge for sure. Uh, I'm going to ask one last question, Paul, if that's okay. So wh- when I, I went to Instagram and said to people I was going to have you on, I was shocked by how many people are actually microdosing themselves. But how do you feel about that? How do you feel about people microdosing by themselves but no supervision you're doing it illegally in a way that if they were caught they'd get arrested yeah no this is a tough situation a lot of people are in of course and um yeah well i mean firstly i would say in terms of you know the criminality aspects uh you know my view is that um that the criminalization of substances uh is a bad thing and has been a bad thing for decades yeah and and and, um we really do need to move away from uh, from a legal perspective on drug use entirely, in my view. And that, that doesn't just include psychedelics by any means. In fact, I would say that we need to uh, do this most urgently for, for drugs with greater harm, uh, like heroin. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But 
uh, th- that's a separate issue to uh, therapeutic uh, administration and, and, and regulation. And, and I guess I would say it's a difficult situation because on the one hand, we've got people who have a lot of need, uh, are desperate for treatments, and with the right uh, context and support are likely to benefit from these treatment approaches. On the other hand, psychedelic-assisted therapies have not satisfied the basic standards by which we apply, that we apply to any intervention or drug that becomes approved and regulated. And so Mm -hmm. um, there is scope for compassionate use and there are compassionate use programs around the world where people can get access uh, prior to uh, regulatory approval. I would say, however, that psychedelics are not without risks and, and, in order to adequately provide compassionate use psychedelics, you need a workforce of adequately trained professionals and you need proper oversight and you need uh, you know, something like a peak body that can assess and understand what uh, best practice in psychedelics is. And uh, you know, we really need to ensure that we don't have a Wild West situation where people can do it any mm-hmm. way they like and there's no recourse to... Um, to kind of resolving issues that might emerge. Um, but, you know, the, the, the issue is that we are still a number of years away from uh, approval and we need to get it right because, um, because approval is tied in with access and access is, mm-hmm. is in part an economic question. You know, it's really important that we don't just develop a set of interventions that very few uh, of the elites can afford. We need mm-hmm. to pr- we need to get the evidence base and the approvals um, that stand us in, in the best chance of getting um, either government uh, Medicare cover or insurance cover, so that uh, it can be these can be accessible treatments. And so far, like what you described, sounds quite expensive, Paul. To be honest, yeah. I mean, like even. Like I, I've, I, I, I hate seeing when, when like CBT sometimes is rolled out publicly in a way that you'll get a group of people doing CBT together and, and it's, you know, it's there to save money and people aren't finding it as effective. And, and when it comes to pinching pennies around stuff like this, like psychotherapy is expensive. Psychotherapy is time consuming. The journey for healing is, is requires a lot of people and a lot of money to do it mm. and simply packaging into us into a pill for the least amount of money that's not a, that's not going to heal human beings yeah too right i mean you know my my sense is what we need to do is an is economic evaluations of these treatment approaches that go much further out than most economic evaluations go so often when you're trying to understand whether an intervention is cost effective yeah, mm-hmm. studies will 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 look uh, over the course of twelve or eighteen months. Um, if these interventions are very expensive in the short term, which they are likely to be, but actually lead to lasting changes in people's lives, yeah. where people who are in and out of a medical system on you know can exit that system and and that's for good or for ten years, uh, then that becomes actually cost effective. Really, the most expensive. Yeah. Um, option is to provide inadequate care that leads to people going in and out of uh, the revolving door uh, situation and and landing Mm -hmm. up, for example, in 
inpatient psychiatric care, which costs, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars a day in some cases, or, or, or mm-hmm. tens of thousands of dollars a week, um, you can offset that one visit um, with with adequate uh, psychotherapy and adequate uh, interventions and care. And so my sense is, yes, it will be expensive, but it may still be cost effective and we just need to look at a longer period of time. On a long-term basis. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So thank you so much for all that, Paul. Is there anything you want that I didn't cover that you really want to get across? Look, there's always an infinite number of topics we could discuss and we could carry on forever. But no, it's been a total pleasure to uh, chat with you again, Blind Boy. Really great. I appreciate your uh, interest in the topic and, and just appreciate your voice in, in the space of uh, mental health care and awareness. And, and um, thank you so much for, for chatting with me. So that was Dr. Paul Litnitsky of Monash University. Um, a wonderful conversation. And I'm really excited to see where his research goes where his research goes and and it sounds like something that personally me I would actually like to do I would like to like I mentioned I'm cautious and afraid of psychedelics but under a clinical psychotherapeutic process like that I would feel safe with something like psilocybin and I'd be interested in doing it so that was quite a long interview um, but we had a lot to cover. We had a lot to cover. and It's an important area. So I'm going to sign off now. And I'll catch you next week. I'll come back with a hot take I reckon next week. And I'm going to sign off. And say goodbye. But after the little break. I'm going to come back on for about five minutes. And play one of my Twitch songs. So if you're not into that. You can just say goodbye right now. And if you are into it, you can stick around a few minutes. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Okay, this is the bit at the end of the podcast where I play a song from my Twitch stream. So what I do on Twitch is, and I've been doing this for all of the pandemic, Twitch is a live streaming platform. Once a week I go on to Twitch completely live And I play a video game called Red Dead Redemption. But while I'm doing it, I have recording equipment and live instruments with me. So what I do is I I write songs to the events of a video game in the moment. So quite a lot of people use Twitch and what they do is they'll play a video game and then talk about what's happening. What I do is use instruments to write songs about what's happening. So it's a new way to create music in the moment so all the music I make is completely improvised on the spot and I don't know what the song is going to be about I don't even know what it's going to sound like I just try and enter the state of creative flow and let it happen so this song that I'm going to play ye, I think I made it about a year ago on Twitch and the song is called Jerry Adams has 32 peanuts in his beard <laughs> <laughs> 
and I was quite happy with it. For something that pulled out of my arse, I was quite happy with it. The title is self-explanatory. Here's Jerry Adams has 32 peanuts in his beard. Dog bless. And by the way, my, my Twitch address is twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast. And I'm on on Thursday nights at 8.30. Jerry Adams. Jerry Adams. Jerry Adams. Jerry Adams. Jerry Adams. How many peanuts have you got in your beard? Oh, Jerry Adams. How many peanuts have you got in your beard? He's got 32, 32, 32 peanuts in his beard. Because Jerry Adams, Jerry Adams has 32 peanuts in his beard. Jerry Adams has 32 peanuts in his Once again, I'm gonna pick them all One by one with my teeth My Republican teeth Cause Jerry Adams has Cartito Pills in his Cut it so pain